At this time, children, you are dismissed to Children's Church. The rest of you grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 27. Put a finger there. And John 19 is where we're going to be this morning. As the kids head out, and as you all find your spots in your Bible... We had a fellowship time this morning, and uh, Jeff prayed about uh, the fact that we, uh, we have new staff um, who arrived this week. And so I want to just introduce to you, give you a, a face uh, with a name. For those of you that haven't had a chance to meet, Andrew and Emily, would y'all stand? I'm sorry, I didn't tell you that I was going to do this. Just stand, Andrew and Emily. Andrew's the one in the blue shirts. Um, actually, they're both in blue shirts. Emily's the one who's pregnant. Uh, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, you guys can be seated. Emily's due to have um, their daughter, Isley. I pronounced that right, right, Emily? Isley, uh, here at the end of the month, early part of July. Um, so if you get opportunity of the next couple of weeks, please um, come and say hi to them. Invite them over for dinner. Uh, I'm sure Emily doesn't want to cook uh, these days, so, um, and I'm sure Andrew likes to eat. So there's, there's, uh, you invite them over, uh, get to know them um, the next couple of weeks. Um, Andrew's role here is what we've entitled the Director of Ministries. This has been about a year-long process of both honing in as to what that means and it will continue to be a year-long process to hone in as to what that means. Uh, you have a job description, and then you get your guy, and then the job description forms around who he is and what his calling and ministry is and how the Lord has particularly gifted him and how the, sh- the, the church moves. But this role, in general, what it is, is what Andrew's going to be doing is as we grow as a church, that when you go from a smaller church to kind of a medium-sized church, you, the systems and structures that you have in place in a small church, things just happen naturally. Everybody already knows each other. As things get bitter, bigger, you get, hopefully not bitter, but bigger, things, uh, you need more systems and structures to help people get to know each other, to, share, to, stay, to care and serve for one another. And so Andrew's going to help us with that. He's going to support all of our community group leaders and ministry leaders. So uh, be patient with us as we try to merge lane him in. This is my first time having a full staff team with Andrew and Ben both on board. Um, so but in the coming year, we'll, we'll figure out what our roles are. Um, and hopefully it'll, God will do great things as we, um, God uses us as a staff to humbly lead, um, but to lead diligently to help us serve one another and serve the world together. Matthew 27 is where we're going to pick up this morning as we continue our series on the Apostles' Creed. We come to the phrase, and it goes this way. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, And buried, and he descended into hell. That's what the Apostles' Creed states. Matthew 27, let's look at the suffering of Jesus. Picking up in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And turn over to John 19, picking up in verse 28. We'll read through verse 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, In order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, 
It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This sends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God, particularly this word, stand forever. Amen. Well, we continue our work through the various topics and themes of the Apostles' Creed. And this morning we come to the phrase that begins with suffered. In our passage today, we see the suffering of Christ. The great catechisms and confessions talk about the humiliation of Christ. It's the way they talk about this descending, his life. But then in particular, this last week where he descends down into humiliation, into suffering. In the Latin term, this idea for suffering is very familiar to us. If you've heard of the word passion week, we get that word from this word suffering. The Latin term for suffering is passus. It's why we call the week leading up to Easter Passion Week. We are celebrating or remembering the sufferings of Christ during the course of that week. And what is often made a very big deal about, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more next week, is the physical sufferings of Christ. We see that in the Passion the movie, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. It is all about, it appears, the physical sufferings of Jesus. But if all you think in, of, as the cross and during Passion Week is that Jesus got hurt badly and he was whipped and he had that crown of thorns and all you feel is pity over how much Jesus physically hurt and that's it in regard to the cross, then I don't think you understand the cross. And understanding the cross is central to understanding the Christian life. An Anglican commentator over in England, a guy named Michael Wilcox, says this about the cross of Jesus. He said, Let no reader imagine that he has begun to understand the Christ of the gospel or indeed the gospel of Christ unless the cross has come to dominate his horizon also. Only when he has sought it and reached it and let it fill his vision as it filled the vision of the Lord and the gospel writers can he say that he is beginning to see what the Christian faith is all about. If you don't get the cross, you don't get Christianity. If you get the cross, it's at the very core of everything you believe. And so this morning we're going to look directly at the cross Directly at what Jesus does there on his time on the cross. Now, looking at the cross is like looking straight at the sun. You see, we often, if you notice, each and every week, I seek to get us to the cross, but we do so kind of like talking about the warmth that we feel from the sun, not by looking directly at it. The beauty of the scriptures and the way it is designed from a literary perspective is it is designed to lead to the cross. Everything flows up to it and everything flows out of it. But when you look directly at it, it can be overwhelming, kind of look, looking at the sun. It's hard to take in. It can be overwhelming, and it can crush you, in fact, over all that's going on there. And so in the hopes of not being encyclopedic for one week and just going rotely through all the things that it means, there's many places you can go. John Piper wrote a book called Passion of Jesus Christ. It came out right around the same time as the movie. In which he, Another book where he talks about 50 reasons why Christ came to die. I'd get those books. That's what's going on on the cross in a kind of very rote, systematic sort of way. You can get that. That's how we're going to look at all those things this week. We're going to try to take the next two weeks, though, to try to comprehend and come to some sort of understanding as to what was going on on the cross. And since it's hard to look directly at, I'm going to point us back to the first day of atonement, as they called it. Look back really quickly to Leviticus 16 to give you an image that hopefully will lead us. It's the warmth of the sun from the Old Testament that leads us back to the cross. And to give us an understanding, to give us some shape and outline for the next two weeks. In Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement, 
It is a day in which all of Israel has prepared themselves and the priest prepares themselves. They set aside two goats in particular. Two goats. And we're going to look at those two goats. The first goat, they lay their hands on, they put all the sins of the people on those goats, and they take that goat into the temple and they slaughter it. That's what we're going to look at this week. And the next week we're going to look at the second goat, where they take that goat, and after the first lamb has been, or the first goat has been slaughtered, they take the second goat and they send him outside of the camp. And we'll look at what that means next week. But this week we look at the first goats. So they're going to use that as the analogy to draw us into what we're talking about this morning. We look at the first goat of what happened. The first goat, when they lay their hands and put all the sins of the people of Israel in that goat, and they take it into the temple, and it goes in there, and they slaughter that goat. Why is that? What's going on there? That goat is paying for the sins of the people. Because we have, and this is understand, those who understand the story of Scripture, we have a God who is gracious and loving, but also part of His perfect and holy character is He is wrathful. And therefore, as people who have sinned, we deserve the wrath of God, and the wrath of God, the way that is fully played out, is through death. And so they would lay the sins of the people upon that goat, and He would go in and He would take the death that they all deserve. The wrath of God would be poured out upon that goat. Now, if you know anything or much about Christianity, you've hung out in the church very often, when you hear the phrase, wrath of God, and you think about death, and the wrath of God and judgment coming down upon that goat, you immediately must begin, or ought to begin, to think about the concept of hell. We've gone in a dark place already this morning, haven't we? It's not going to get much better for a little bu- in a little while. Hell, hell is not only controversial in general in the church, The idea and the mention of hell, even within the Apostles' Creed itself, is the most controversial part of the Apostles' Creed. If you notice, I read it this morning, we don't yet state it usually in the Apostles' Creed, although we may, after the elders discuss it in the coming weeks. At the end of the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus did what after he was buried? Descended into hell. Now, really quickly, we're going to look at at this idea of hell more at length this morning. But, let me talk about what the the debate is over this issue of Jesus descending into hell. Here's what the issue is. Some people look at that and they think that's odd because Jesus on the cross tells another, the other thief on the cross that he's going to be with him in paradise that very day. So did Jesus go to hell? It does not appear that he went to hell after his death. Actually, what the Apostles' Creed, if people would understand the way languages change and form over the centuries, they understand there shouldn't be a whole lot of controversy over that statement. In the scriptures, there are three different words for the afterlife or for hell, and they kind of merge and, and, and take on different forms. In the Hebrew, there's the word sheol, which simply means the afterlife. It is the place of the dead. Now, the Greek understanding of the New Testament word for sheol is the word hades. It is the place of the dead. It is the, where people go, the, the grave. It is your state, your intermediate state, where you stay before God has come back in the final judgments. For Christians who love Jesus, whose faith and trust is in Him, that is paradise. For those who do not love Jesus, who have not put their trust in Him, that place is called Hades, an early and initial experience of hell. What we see is He went into Hades, the place of, of Sheol, after death. He did not go, the, the other Greek word for hell, the more direct word that means the final place of judgment, is Gehenna. Jesus did not go to Gehenna. He did not enter into the physical realms and depths of hell. But what the creed means by saying that Jesus descended into hell, this is why I think we can state this and understand it, we just have to give it some definition, 
is what it means is he fully entered into the grave. And what the Apostles' Creed here is trying to go against is the various heresies in the early church that would say that Jesus only looked like he died. He was in a coma for three days. He fainted for three days. But he actually was crucified. He actually died. He actually was buried. And he was in the place of the dead. Where people who are literally physically dead go. And it's from Hades. It is from Sheol. It is from death that he arose again. He did not arise again from Gehenna, from hell. Okay, so there's your academic theological explanation real quick. Now let's get the heart of the issue, though. At the same time, what still is in front of us is people have debated this very issue as to whether Jesus descended into hell. If some people have begun to understand as they look at this of the sufferings of Christ and they begin to ask the question, maybe he didn't descend into the physical depths of hell, but did he experience hell? Did Jesus experience hell? hell because there's a dilemma jesus came to atone and to save us from all the wrath and punishment of sin and the wrath of punishment of sin does not simply end with physical death does it it ends with hell because that is what our sin deserved because we have sinned against a holy infinitely good and beautiful god and therefore when you sin against an infinite being who's infinitely good it deserves infinite wrath endless wrath and so we, let's look, as we look at the sufferings of Jesus this morning, as he experienced the wrath of God, we ask this question. Did he experience hell? And here's how I want to go about this. I want to look at some of the descriptions of hell, the, the key descriptions we ha- of hell we see in the New Testament, and look and see if this, the experience of Jesus on the cross fits with that. Three experiences, three descriptions of hell, three experiences on the cross to give you this morning. They'll bleed into one another and they'll feed one another. Each one will take a little bit longer to explain. The first point in the first experience is this. Is that hell is the experience of darkness. It's the experience of darkness. Hell is described in many numerous places in the New Testament as the place of darkness. In Matthew 22 verse 13 in a parable it says this. The king said to the attendants bind him. So talking about those who are going to be cast away because they don't believe. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness throughout the scriptures signifies, it symbolizes judgment and wrath. Mayhem, judgment, chaos, confusion are all communicated in the term darkness. If you remember during the plagues of Egypt... What was one of the plagues, ten plagues of Egypt, that God sent down upon Pharaoh upon Egypt because he would not let his people go? Darkness was one of them. It is a sign and a description of God's wrath and God's judgments. And it is Jesus experienced darkness on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 45 says this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. What's going on there? Those are the very hours in which Jesus is put on the cross... And we see later on that it's around the ninth hour that he gives, us his, gives up his spirit. What has happened? The very context in which the, the time in which Jesus is on the cross is absolute darkness. The hours while he is there, the very air, the very context, the very environment upon which Jesus is living and breathing during his time on the cross is a time of darkness. And his judgment is in the very air. So that's the first experience. Well, this points us to the second description of Jesus' death. And the second description also of hell, and that is this. It is the experience of forsakenness. Hell is described as a place 
of utter abandonment. Matthew 25, verses 41 says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire. Where do they go? Departed. Away from my presence. Now, hell is not necessarily away from the utter and absolute absence of God, but what it is is the the utter and absolute absence of God's blessing. All that is left for those who are in hell is the cursings of God. No more blessings, no more graciousness, no more mercy. Even the worst sinner during his time on earth experiences the common grace of God to provide rain and food and blessings of all sorts of kinds. Love and relationships. But what we see in hell is that all the remnants of God's grace and God's light have been snuffed out. All that's left for those in hell is darkness, forsakenness, abandonment. How do we know that? Because God is light. And how is hell described? We just talked about this just a second ago. Hell is described as darkness. Now here's the truth about hell in one sense. Some people think about the idea, and some people have significant issues with hell, and as a Christian, you probably should have some significant issues with hell. It should push against the very idea of a God who is loving and gracious. It should bother us. It's supposed to. But that doesn't mean it's not a reality. But one of the issues that people have is they say, how could God send people to hell? Well, God is, in a sense, the main agency by which people go to hell. But there is also a sense in which we send ourselves to hell. And it's seen in this very idea of abandonment because the, the, the nature of hell is this, is hell is the culmination of a life that says to God, get out of my life, get out of my life, get out of my life. The reality is this, is that if you, for the rest of your life, for all the days of your life, you tell God, I don't want you, I don't want you as my Lord, I don't want you as my Savior, I don't want you telling me what to do, eventually, you know what happens? He listens to you. And he gets out of your life, but he gets out of your life completely. And when God forsakes you and leaves you and listens to your will, all his blessings go with them. C.S. Lewis put it this way, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To leave you alone? Alas, I am afraid that is exactly what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, Lewis says. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now, here is the incredible irony of the gospel. Is that there was a son who came who perfectly fulfilled his father's will, and in the garden, what does he say? He says, Thy will be done. And yet, what does he get? What does he get on the cross? Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus says this, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The worst sentence in all the world, the worst punishment in all the world is to be forsaken, to be separated, to be solitary. That is the experience of hell. And here Jesus, who came and said, thy will be done, still receives the punishment of those who say, I want my will to be done. Jesus bore a cross and he was forsaken by the Father. He was abandoned all the way to Sheol, all the way to Hades, all the way to physical death. In the Jewish concept, this is as far away from God as you can possibly get. And he experienced what? Not the blessings of God on the cross, but the curse of God on the cross. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians, accursed is everyone who dies on a tree. What does Jesus receive from the Father? Forsakenness 
and nothing is left for him, no blessing, but merely cursing. The third description. The third description of hell and the third experience of the cross is this. Hell is described as a place of burning and eternal thirst. When people think of hell, this is what they primarily think of, right? A devil with a pitchfork with fire kind of flaming up around him. This is, it's fair in some ways. This is the image that the scriptures consistently give. Mark 9, 43 says this, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life crippled with, with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Then there's the account in Luke chapter 16. It's an interesting account about two men. A man named Lazarus who is a poor man, and then a rich man who has given no man name because his name is Rich Man. That's all he is known as. And they both die... And Lazarus goes to the, to the, the, into relationship with Abraham. He goes to heaven, to paradise. And the rich man dies and he goes to Hades and begins to experience the torments and judgments there. And there we see, picking up in verse 23, that the rich man says, he lifts up his eyes and he saw Abraham and he sees Lazarus at his side. And this is what he says. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He's thirsting. This is, now, this is an interesting fire. This is like the fire that Moses ran into. Do you remember that fire? The fire of the God who says, I am who I am, who, who's uh, see, he's seen in a burning tree, but what happens to the tree? Is it consumes? There is no consumption. And this is how the fires of hell are described. It is eternal and everlasting fire in the wrath of God, but still conscious and no consumption and no end. And what we see is that that burning creates an inner thirst, an inner dryness on the tongues of this man. And this metaphor of thirst, of needing to have his tongue quenched, his thirst quenched, what we see of that idea of thirst throughout the scriptures is that thirst represents misery. It represents distress, hopelessness, and even death. In the scriptures, if people believe that God has abandoned them, they describe it as thirsting after the Lord. David talks about this in Psalm 63 where he says this, where he's praying. He says, my soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The sense that God has left you alone, that he is not with you, is a thirsting experience. Dehydrated spiritually. What the Bible is saying here is that there is something spiritually in our souls that we need every bit as water. As our body needs water. There's something that if you don't have it, just like your body, if you don't have water, you begin to have a thirst that kills you eventually. You shrivel up and you begin to burn up inside if you have no water. And that is the same way what happens to us spiritually. Now, what's so intriguing and so ironic about the death by dehydration is that the people who talk about de- as they move through the process of dehydration says at first it feels like their insides are being shriveled up. They feel empty, utter, utter emptiness. But then like, the way they describe the last stages of dehydration right before death is it just feels like an internal burning. It's fire in their stomachs. And the Bible is saying is if you don't get God at the center of your soul, if you don't get God at the center of your soul, if he's not the means by which all the thirst of your life, of your soul, is not the means by which you are quenched, then you will thirst in an everlasting sort of way. You will burn spiritually from the inside out. This is what God is so concerned about when he speaks to Israel through his prophet Jeremiah. 
In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he sends Jeremiah to the people of Israel and he says this, You have turned away from me, for I am the fountain of living water and what has happened to Israel. And you have turned to other cisterns. You have dug other wells, but you're going to die because of your thirst spiritually. You're going to have an internal thirst because you have wells that run dry. They have water that cannot satisfy. And this is the course of the life of so many then this is the reality, and C.S. Lewis talks about this, that hell does not begin sometime in the future. Hell begins now. Just as Christians begin to get a foretaste and experience, a little foretaste of heaven now, so those who are living in eternal death are getting a foretaste of eternal thirst now. That unquenching sense of longing that we have, that we run from one thing to the computer screen, to our work, to our children, to all these other places. These are the things that we are turning toward to quench the spiritual thirst. But to do so is to like to run to the ocean to quench your thirst. What happens if you're out on just a boat floating in the sea for days and days and days? You begin to thirst, but what would happen if you drank that seawater? It would be like taking sulfur into the very insides of your stomach and you would burn up even quicker. And yet this is the reality of so many of us. We have begun to experience hell right now. This is the experience of so many who don't trust in the Lord, who don't run to the quenching taste of Jesus Christ. The point is this. In hell, the main burning is not physical. It is spiritual. It is a thirst that comes from having your desire for the Lord never quenched. Is Jesus experiencing this? I think so. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture... I thirst. Why would he say that? You might say, well, listen, he was crucified in the middle of the day. He's been beaten. He had to drag a very heavy cross up a hill. It's hot. It's arid. It's the Middle East. Of course he would be thirsty. He's thirsty. He's parched. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because thirst cannot be the the infinite, the, the most immediate painful sensation that Jesus has in his life at that moment. Here's a man who has been scourged to the point that the bones on his back are exposed. He's a man who has lifted a huge piece of wood on on top of that bloody back, who has thorns pushed into his head, and we don't get a word of complaint from him. Not a word. And yet, he hasn't had some water in a couple hours, and what does he say? This? This is what he complains about? I thirst? I think the issue here is that Jesus is not so much focused upon his physical thirst, but there is a spiritual internal thirst that is going on here. I think the text even tells us so. It says that he said this, I thirst, in order to fulfill the scriptures. What scripture is that? I believe it's Psalm 22. This is the scripture that he has in mind while he's on the cross. Here's what Psalm 22 says. I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up like a piece of earthenware in the furnace. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Say, how do we know that he is thinking of Psalm 22 here? Because what's the other thing he says? How does Psalm 22 begin? Because where Jesus, the other place he's beginning to quote from Psalm 22 is this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Jesus thirst? Is it merely physical thirst? No. He has been abandoned and forsaken by the Father. He is experiencing the soul thirst 
that everyone who does not have the Father experiences. He is crying out because here in this moment on the cross, he is not just is surrounded by darkness. He is forsaken by the Father. And that forsakenness by the Father leads to a spiritual longing within Jesus that is not quenched. Why? Because the Father turns his face away. So I ask you again, did Jesus experience hell? I think the resounding truth of the Gospels here is that yes, Jesus did experience hell. And in this we begin to see that it's not merely what the cross is about, is not merely Jesus' physical sufferings. Why did he go to the cross? Was it simply to lay his life down for you? Understand this, people say no one has ever laid their life down for you. That's simply not true, is it? A couple weeks ago we celebrated Memorial Day. There are thousands upon hundreds of thousands of men and women who have laid down their life to give you freedom. Parents, in a second, you wouldn't think at all to jump in front of a car in order to save your child, to give your child more life on this earth. Absolutely, there's people today dying to give you freedom. So what was it that Jesus did that was so much different than what thousands and maybe millions of people have done for others? See, there's people who have died for your freedom, but there is only one person who has gone to the depths of hell you. What the cross is about is this, is that Jesus plunged to the very depths of the wrath of God. He experienced the dregs of hell in order to go get you and to pull you out and to make you his. This is the truth of the gospel. People often look at the doctrine of hell and they see it as some blemish on God's love, but the Bible presents it as quite the opposite. Hell magnifies for us the love of God. By showing us just how far God was willing to go in order to bring you home and to make you His. And what should be the response to this? And there should be a response. And it probably should be visceral. Give you two responses. And first is this. You should get low. Seen the movie? You should see the movie. It's about repentance. How does the suffering of Christ make us get low? See if I can describe it this way. A guy named Ralph Wood is a professor of theology and literature at Baylor University. Man, this guy's a stud. He liked, I love reading his stuff. He's a, he's a literary uh, genius on Tolkien and Flannery O'Connor. And he wrote a book recently on Flannery O'Connor called The Christ-Haunted South, which is Connor's great description of the church in the South. But Ralph Wood describes this about in, in one of his books. He says this on an account... And going to Dachau in Germany. He says, I learned an unwelcome lesson when my family and I visited Dachau, the concentration camp near Munich. With good cause, the Germans have not made it an easy place to find. Having finally located the train for Dachau, we, we discovered that it was loaded with American college students enjoying their European spring vacation. They, too, were traveling to Dachau. It was the weekend of the NCAA basketball championship, and the train was full of raucous talk about the tournament. We might as well have been at Wendy's or McDonald's. It was not a proud moment for me to be an American or a Christian traveling to a Nazi death camp as if to a sporting event. Yet something surpassingly strange happened when we Americans entered the camp and the gates there above us as we walked through with their mocking slogan, Arbeit macht frei, which means work makes free. Silence fell over us and fell over everyone. Everything had become eerily quiet. As we walked through the dormitories and past the crematoria, no one clutched confidently about the terrible things that the Germans had done to the Jews. We all seemed to sense in a subterranean, unconfessed way 
that we also could commit such unspeakable crimes. I had no desire to shout, they did this, but rather we did this. We human beings, we who killed these Jews, but we who ultimately killed the ultimate Jew named Jesus the Christ. This is something you may have grown up hearing, and it's fallen out of favor, but this is true. Friends, we killed Jesus. It is the reality. It says Pontius Pilate, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, but he's simply the representative of man. Our sin did this. If you really let the meaning of the scriptures press into you, you'll notice that this is not first and foremost a feel-good story. One of the first things you'll see, one of the first things you'll see about what the cross tells us is that you are far, far worse than you ever dared imagine. You know how bad you are? Son of God had to come to earth and he had to die on a cross for your sins. Your sins are not something to trifle with. They are not merely a mistake. They're not simply a, a momentary failure. They are cosmic treason. You see what it costs them. So when you, see, when you say Jesus Christ died for us, we ought to tremble a little bit. And maybe tremble to the point we get on our knees and repent because our sin is offensive to God, so much so that it killed Jesus. You see, the realization of this, Christians, the realization of this is it ought to end our superiority complexes. And it ought to crush whatever arrogance that is left inside of you. Do you struggle to forgive other people? Do you hold grudges? When your church begins to reach out to those people, do you bail? We can't have those kids coming to our youth group. It's they're those people. God forbid those three people should come hang out with these people. Perhaps you've ever heard yourself saying, I just have no patience for you fill in the blank. I choose that phrase because I say it all the time. Brothers and sisters, the cross means we've got to get low. It ought to push us down into repentance. The utterly unbelievable display of God's grace is this incredible thing. We told God to go to hell. And he did. That's crazy. So first, we've got to get low. Second, complete opposite, we've got to boast. What does Paul say about the cross? I boast in nothing, nothing else, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross in the Christian life is not just the central doctrine to understand It is not simply a theological concept, but it is to be the center of your life, the very boast of your tongue, the joy of your heart. And my goal this week and next week, if you would press into the idea of what the cross means, is that you would see this as a central boast of your heart and your life. Why boast in the cross? Jesus tells us why. John 19, verse 28 through 30, we'll read it again. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Why should we boast in the cross? Because it is finished. After the darkness, 
after the abandonment, after the thirsting, Jesus says, it is all finished. In order to understand the profundity of what is being stated here, you have to understand the Greek word. And the Greek word is telestai. If you're going to get a tattoo, get the word telestai tattooed to you. I'm serious. I'm literally thinking about it. And here's why. Because here's what telestai means. It, it, it is finished. I like that, that interpretation. They have done a great job translating. And period, it is finished. But what that period means when the end of it is finished is there is a, in the grammar here, it is a beyond perfect finishing. This is an ultimate finishing. There is nothing else left. He has accomplished it all. That's what it means. Jesus is saying, I have done it. I have completely and utterly finished all the work I came here to do and all the work that is left for you to do. There is none. He's done it all. And it's the amazing thing here is that Jesus, with his hands nailed, Exhausted, bleeding, wounded, suffering, extended in utter and absolute weakness. He speaks of words of accomplishment. Because it is finished. What was finished though? 1 Peter 3, 18 says this. Jesus Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. To do what? To bring us to God. What it means is he's saying, I have traversed the infinite distance, the chasm that is between us and God. They put it into terms from today. Jesus has traversed the distance between you and God, but that means he had to traverse the distance between heaven and hell. He became the bridge in which people who are destined for hell are now destined for heaven. There is nothing left for us to do. This is the equation. If you've been through our discovery class, our new members class here, this is the equation that you might remember me saying. This is the truth of when that phrase, it is finished. It means Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I watched Charlotte's Web this week, so I have the goose in my head. What does the goose do? She repeats everything. Jesus plus nothing plus nothing plus nothing equals everything, everything, everything. And to add anything to that, to add anything to Jesus' finished work is to add an idol. The moment we accept what we has done, the beautiful truth for us is we get to hear the voice of the Savior who says, Come, beautiful child, who I love, you are mine, you are accepted. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. You know what Buddha said at the end of his life, what tradition says that Buddha said? His last words, strive without ceasing. Jesus says, it is finished. Religion says, finish the work. Gospel says, receive the finished work. Religion says, if you finish the work someday, when you get to the end of your life, maybe God will give you acceptance. Maybe he'll usher you into your presence. The gospel says, you are right now through the work, finished work of Jesus Christ, accepted and loved and adored by God the Father. That's the gospel. And you begin to understand the cross and understand those truths. And you begin to boast. Here's what's going to begin to happen in your life. First, the thirst that is in your soul will begin to be quenched. To look to the cross, to see his thirst, is to have your thirst, your spiritual thirst, quenched. It's to put an end to all the things that you've looked to to seek to hydrate your soul. Likes on Facebook. Isn't that what hydrates your soul? If people would just love my children as much as I love them. You know it's true. Obsessively looking back nine times to see how many times people have commented. What is that? 
That's drinking salt water from the sea. The money in the bank, does that quench your soul? The pornography on the screen, how's that working? What are, we, what are you seeking to quench your thirst in your life with? Jesus says, look to me, the one who thirsted for you. Will you come and drink? And second, you'll know you're boasting in the cross when you begin to rest. You rest from what? Rest, rest from trying to make yourself worthy and acceptable. Talked about the exteriority complex a few minutes ago. What about the inferiority complex? Too many of you as Christians, you bounce from one to the other. We have such bipolarity, don't we? Spiritual schizophrenia, we jump back and forth. Where you always feel inadequate. You're always feeling like you can't live up. You always feel unacceptable. And what are the words, the names that you call yourself in those moments? You fool, you loser, I hate you. It's because you're so sinful, you're so rotten. You know, the signs of this that you have an inferiority complex is you get really defensive when people call you out on your sin because you can't the thought, bear the thought of being exposed. You're constantly joyless, pessimistic, cynical. You feel beaten up. You have no joy in your Christian life. What's your problem? You don't know that it is finished. So yes, go get Telestai. If you have to, tattoo it on your arm and you wake up every morning and you look at it. You might have to deal with some passages in the Old Testament about not tattooing things on your body, but you get over that ethical issue, you tattoo this somewhere, get henna tattoo, whatever you need to do, but you preach this to yourself every day. It is finished. So you can stop beating yourself up. And what can you do? You can come to the table of mercy where sinners like you and, my, you and I are welcomed and called to come and take part in his grace and his mercy. With that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Those who are going to serve at the table with me, come forward. As they're doing that, and you're bowing your heads. As our prayer this morning, I want to read to you from the old Gadsby hymnal, from a song entitled, It is Finished. Here's the lyrics. It is finished. All is over. Yes, the cup of wrath is drained. Such the truth these words discover. Thus the victory was obtained. Tis a victory none but Jesus could have gained. Hark, the voice of love and mercy sounds aloud from Calvary. See, it renders the rocks asunder, shakes the earth and veils the sky. It is finished. It is finished. Hear the dying Savior's cry. I pray it is finished over these people, Lord. I pray that we would understand this, not just with our heads, but with our hearts, that you would drive this down to the core of our being. We thank you that you didn't just give us words, but you gave us a drama and a play. That we don't get to just hear the words, we get to eat the words, it is finished. And so I lay aside and I put aside these, this bread and this juice, this wine that represent your body and blood. These things, may they be a means of grace to us this morning. Where they communicate to us in spiritual and physical ways the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stating to us as we eat and as we drink, it is finished, it is all finished.
And we know that fully and completely this, this day. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. I think there's, I love the scriptures. It's so cool. One of the favorite psalms for many of you is Psalm 23. It goes this way. The Lord is my shepherd. It goes on and it weds the two things about thirsting and resting for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does he do? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. It's the picture coming to waters that are fresh and clean and gentle that we can drink from. It is the place of rest. The quiet waters is Jesus himself. And Psalm 23 continues to go on. It says this. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overfloweth. There's this interesting tradition in the Catholic Church where all the wine that isn't used for uh, the, the Eucharist has to be drank up. They can't throw it away. It can't hit the floor. It can't throw it out. Eh, whatever. But he, here's... I almost find that to be a little bit... I think it might violate this picture. See, because Christ's blood is so abundant, it says it overfloweth. It is so great. His mercy is so great for you that it overflows into your mouth, comes down all over your clothes, and drips onto the floor. It is drenching. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's table, where his cup of mercy overflows for you. Would you come, brothers and sisters, and drink? For some of you this morning, you have never drank of Jesus. You're seeking to have your thirst quenched by all sorts of other things. You don't trust in him. And frankly, you find all this talk about a man dying on a cross, utter foolishness. You know what? We think that too. Paul says it's utter foolishness. We know this is crazy. That's why we find it so sweet and so beautiful. Let me ask you this. I, I, if you don't trust this, if you're looking to other things besides Jesus and his work on the cross for you, I, I would ask you to let the bread and the cup pass because we are confessing, those who are eating and drinking, we are saying, that we're, we're, we're taking in the foolishness. We say we trust in this for our life, for our atonement to make us right before God. And if you don't believe that, then to, to take and eat and drink would be a lie. It would be hypocrisy. And it would, to mock, it would be to mock us. So even for public civility, we would ask for you to stay away. But it would also be good for your soul. Instead, as the cup and the, and the, and the juice goes past, maybe you could consider how are the things that you're drinking from and eating from, how is that working for you? Is that quenching the longing of your soul? Or is it leaving you thirsty time after time after time? For you Christians who trust in the cross, but you are struggling this morning. The table is made for you. Those of you who have devils and demons that come and speak to you and says you are unworthy and you are unacceptable, who bring before you all the lines of the things that you have done and read to you your condemnation. Or maybe it's not even the devil and the demons. Maybe it's just your own mind and your own heart that speak these things to you. Here's what the bread and the cup say to you. It is finished. You are forgiven. You are loved. And you are accepted. Come and drink. So even your weariness and your struggle, this is the place for you to come receive from the grace of the Lord Jesus. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. 
And he gave it to his disciples, and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, brothers. In the same manner, Jesus also took a cup. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins, that is, for the purification. Drink from it, all of you. Brothers, you pray with me. Lord, I pray that you drive home the things that we've read about and preached about and sung about and then ate. Lord, I pray that you would use this, this body, this bread, this cup to unify us as a community. That we would lay aside grudges. That we would forgive because we know that we've been forgiven. You would humble us. Lord, I pray that you'd make us a more confident people because of the love and security we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd make us a more loving and joyful people because there's nothing, there's nothing that can separate us from your love in Him. So we thank you for those sweet truths. Amen.